0: Welcome to Day Beautiful. My name is Adam Cabbage, and this is a podcast where you can discover debut authors through in-depth interviews about their life, their creativity, their craft, and everything in between. If you like what you hear here, you can support Day Beautiful by buying a Day Beautiful t-shirt at daybeautiful.net slash shop. You can also follow us at Day Beautiful on all social medias like Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, maybe even Pinterest one day. Today's guest has received fellowships from the Bread Loaf Writers' Conference, the Tin House Summer Workshop, the Sewanee Writers' Conference, and many more. Their writing has appeared in The Atlantic, Tin House, Vice, TriQuarterly. Their debut novel, The Atmospherians, is out now. Their name is Alex McElroy. Hey, Alex. How are you doing today?
1: I am doing well. It is raining in Brooklyn, so it's a nice day to be inside and look out the window.
0: I lived in Phoenix forever where it didn't rain and now that I'm in Denver there is weather and um, so it's late mid-April and it's
1: supposed to snow tomorrow. And I'm like oh, oh okay. no no. Oh my God. Yeah I was in Tempe for three years so I know yeah I know the weatherless landscape of Arizona or only like The occasional dust storm.
0: Yes, a lot of beige buildings and beige weather.
1: (laughs) Absolutely, yeah.
0: Um, Perfect, yeah. We'll definitely talk about your time at Arizona State where I also did my undergrad. You got your MFA from there. But um, I want to hear more about The Atmospherians. Tell readers who may not know about the book, what it's about and, and everything.
1: Yeah, so The Atmospherians is a satirical novel about two best friends who start a cult to reform problematic men. Uh, It deals with questions of wellness and of wokeness. Uh, It deals with codependency, with friendships, um, and how friendships sort of evolve over time, and what I think really binds people together and why people are connected with each other. Um, Overall, though, I think it's just a story of people who are somewhat, I guess we can talk about, um, you know, the internet and things like that, which is a question I've been fielding a little bit, but I think it's, it's a story of people whose thinking has been shaped by the time that they have spent online and sort of what that does to people. So it's all a lot about, it's a book a lot about performance, a lot about masculinity, uh, gender roles, and I think just sort of desperation and loneliness and what eventually leads people to come together.
0: Yeah, it is, I feel like the perfect book for 2021. Um it touches on okay. so much of yeah. It, t- yeah, it just touches on so much of what's been going on in our culture. Um yeah. you know, from toxic men to how the internet kind of shapes us. Um so much is going on in this, and I and I love it. Um I wanna start before we get too into the atmospheres, I do want to just figure out, you know, how how you became the writer you are um the back of your book it talks about how like you moved across country um yeah. you know and, and and a lot of kids you know we go to school kind of nearby but you like went from jersey to oregon as far as you can go um was that yeah. for school or was that for just life
1: uh, it was for school and probably life as well. I mean, I, I sort of really much did uh, want to get as far away as I possibly could. Um, and with all, all love and respect for my parents. Um, but I really needed to get away and I needed to, I think, start a very different life uh, than what I was doing um, when I was living in Jersey, I actually did one year of school in St. at St. John's, which is in Queens, um, but I just sort of wasn't cut out for the city at that age, uh, so I moved far away to Oregon, and I think I, it was a pretty incredible experience for me, and that's where I started seriously writing, uh, and it was incredibly formative for me, and where I began to gain the discipline that I would need uh, for the rest of my, the beginning of my career mm-hmm. that I'm at right now, yeah.
0: Was it... That freedom to be yourself that allowed you the freedom to write the way you wanted to?
1: Yeah, I, I mean, I think that's really interesting because I don't think I, I, I think of that as like two parts, right? Because I think I had the freedom to write. I don't think I had the freedom to write as I wanted to, right? I was very much, you know, 19 and 20 and trying to like um, impress. Uh, you know, professors and impress friends and impress um, grad students who I wanted to like invite me to their parties. Um, And so I was, I don't think I was really writing for myself at that age. And when I look back on those stories, I can see how clearly they were meant to impress the authority figures in my life. Um, And I think it probably wasn't until I went to grad school when I actually started to write as myself uh, and sort of broke out of the um kind of like uh ice shell that I had been in um in order to like actually start writing my own stories
0: did you know like while you were at or in Oregon that an MFA was on the horizon or or when did you discover that route was right for you
1: yeah I mean I so Oregon State has an MFA program so I did a lot of like um you know, just hanging around that MFA program, like going to the readings. Uh, When I was an undergrad, I I was able to take a few of the graduate classes as well. Um, So I think I felt in that world and it definitely seemed like something that I wanted to continue doing. I was absolutely sure that I wanted to pursue writing uh, and that seemed the best way for me to do it, um, is just to really find a way to continue this trajectory and to continue studying, continue to find time and support, by which I mean like financial support, um, which is what the MFA was offering and the sort of freedom to to grow as a writer and a thinker.
0: And then, so you end up at Arizona State, which is near and dear to my heart. I um, moved to Arizona, you know, in the middle of my youth and then ended up at Arizona State for my undergrad. Um,
1: Nice. Go Sun Devils.
0: Yeah, uh, that's that's what they say. Go Sun Devils. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So you and I'm just actually curious. So I I graduated my undergrad in 2011. I'm assuming your MFA was well after that.
1: Yeah, I was there from 2012 to 2015. So we were ships in the night.
0: Yeah, so I was back and forth in Arizona at that time. It's just wild to me that you know, here we are on a podcast all these years later and we could have bumped into each other. Yeah, it.
1: maybe we did. You, did you work at Changing Hands? Am I, I right? at
0: Changing Hands. Um, yeah, I was, on their, no? I was on their event staff and like uh, on the floor around, ah, when was it? When did I move here? 2018 probably is when I started there.
1: Oh, Yeah, okay. no, yeah, I worked well, full time.
0: like, and then, I, and then finally I was like, I'm going to start working in the book world. But Changing nice, Hands, nice. yeah, so I, did you spend time at Changing Hands like in
1: Phoenix with the bar and everything? Were you there yeah, when it so opened? I I they opened my last year so I didn't spend much time there I would normally go to the changing hands that was in Tempe that was like oh my god like I didn't have a car when I lived there and I would like like stupidly bike like an hour to go to like changing hands with like um and leave with like too many books and like arrive back at my apartment just like absolutely drenched from like sweating through this arizona heat um so yeah it would uh that was one of my like you know every couple months i would make that trek myself
0: yeah because i know we're we're just talking about arizona landscape but yeah uh, the change of hands tempe is not near arizona state necessarily it's in different parts of town so um yeah it's a hike yeah definitely and then so you're at arizona state you're you're getting your mfa Mm -hmm. um is that when you, is Atmospherians in your head at that point, or is this a more recent development, this book?
1: Um, yeah. I mean, I wish I could say to you that it was like one of those, you know, four month works of genius or something like that. Um, but I don't think I actually really started writing it. I mean, it, I think with a novel, it's hard to know where it begins. I think this book very much, the two core characters, Sasha and Dyson, um, emerged in different forms throughout many years, right? There was a story that I actually published in Catapult years ago um, that has essentially these characters um, just in like a different universe, right? it's I like sort of wrote my own fan fiction. Um, and that I think was me working towards figuring out what the story was. Like I always wanted to write about these characters. I was fascinated by them, um, but I didn't really have an actual story, right? And even the early pages of this draft for the novel were just them talking to each other. And I was just kind of like looking for like what they were doing. Um, So that I think was a real, I would say that I like began writing about these characters maybe in like 2014. but it feels very much like um, like the Argo or something like that. Like, you know, they have the same name, but everything about them is different. Um, so that kind of, um, so yeah, I don't think I seriously began writing it until about 2016 though. is yeah, when well, I like really started into this project as this project.
0: Yeah. And what, what was it about Sasha and Dyson that made them stick around so many times through so many different, starts and
1: stops the stories? I think I was really fascinated by um, friendship that is not romantic and I think most of the stories that I was reading most of what I was thinking about most of what I was seeing on tv um, were the almost like rom-com dynamic of like will they won't they Um, and there was part of me that wanted to be like they won't like just just accept that they won't um, and let's move on and let's see what other forms of like affection can be created and what other forms of relationships are created. And so I was really fascinated by that kind of platonic friendship and the way that people come to owe people throughout their entire lives. So those assumptions about really being beholden to another person. And at least in my life, I feel like friendship has been stronger than romantic relationships. And when I feel beholden to someone, when I feel um, that I need to like maintain something over like years and even decades, um, it's the friendships that last, um, which I find really fascinating because friendships can really um, cut out and just be on life support for years, and then just be resuscitated in something beautiful once again. Um, whereas I think romantic relationships aren't that at all, even if they have at times a more intensified form of intimacy. Um, so those types of um, those scales of intimacy have always been really, really compelling for me.
0: And yeah, I I, I find that interesting. Like I am not much of a fiction writer, and I think I've said this. Like I dabble in it. Um, but I'm much more interested in just talking to fiction writers. But uh, I've had a character I've been like trying to find the right story for that I'm just obsessed with. And to the point where I'm like, Oh, I forgot that they're not even like in my real life.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I I mean, they are right. Like there's enough of them there. Yeah. It's like buying a hologram Mm -hmm. right? and it's just sort of like there. Yeah.
0: And then, so um and i I, forgive me you you just said the year when did when did uh, you start earnestly writing what became the
1: atmosphere yeah i would say about 2016
0: okay 2016 so right around the time of the me too movement and our unfortunate four-year turn into um the most toxic man leading our nation um was that kind of did, did, those, did, did the Me Too movement, did uh, you know, the, the 2016 election, did those become catalysts for the direction you took the book or did the, that just happen to coincide with when this started formulating?
1: Yeah, I mean, that reminds me of something that Margaret Atwood said, um, funny enough, at Arizona State University. Um, she was asked, uh, why does she write or did she like intentionally write political novels uh, or write politically. And her response was like that she wrote about it because it was the things that were on her mind and that she did not set out to like write political novels or progressive novels or whatever you wanna call it. Um, But these were the things that she was thinking about and it was what was sort of daily with her. Um, And I think in 2016, it was something that we couldn't really escape and get away from. And the question of like the Me Too movement and Trump's presidency, all that made me think a lot about, there was also in a time when I think a lot of Americans, and I think especially a lot of like white Americans, were trying to figure out like how to not be associated with people who had done wrong, right? And so that there were a lot of attempts to um, improve oneself and be better and, you know, to do the reading and do the work and all of that. Um, And that I think was a strange phenomenon. and that I think is the type of language that really fuels so much of Dyson in that he is someone who wants to do good, but he is also someone who really wants to take a shortcut Toward that kind of good, and I think that that was a really peculiar phenomenon that I was seeing, and that I was just like, I don't, I don't think it's, I don't want to be judgmental about it. I don't think it's like a good or bad thing. I think anyone who is trying to be better is a good thing. Um, but I do think that the language around it was really fascinating to me, and I think probably I'm at my core really interested in how a, you know social conversation is based in a certain style of language. And for me, it was a lot of people who say, similar to like Dyson says, like, we wanna do better and you wanna like change the world and we're gonna like figure out how to do it. Um, and also want to be very vocal and public about that. And I was just sort of interested about what that would look like if taken to its extreme by someone who has no idea what they're doing, um, which is uh, which is sort of where Dyson is.
0: Yeah, and these, these characters create this resort spa rehab center for toxic men um did you how did that all unfold did you did you just think this is something someone I know would do or were you trying to look for the most absurd thing to to make commentary on what was going on in real life
1: yeah I mean I I think I developed that, I mean, really was an incremental process. Um, I had two characters who I think were very clear that they wanted to start a cult and I couldn't really figure out why, right? I mean, that idea itself just seemed like funny to me and like funny in like a very sort of dark humor sense of way of like, um, but I think as things went on, I was just trying to figure out like, what would they be trying to focus on? And what would these individual characters be focusing on? Um, and I think for Dyson, it became about, I mean, there are two things we can, we haven't touched on it yet, but I think something like disordered eating is uh, prominent in this book. And Dyson's a character who has suffered from eating disorders and he's someone who um, has not been able to overcome that and even though he knows that it's something that is like wrong that he doesn't really want to keep doing um he's also at a point in his life where he would rather create a consensus around that instead of actually trying to do better for himself so that I think was a real part of the spurring of what their cult became um that sort of eating mentality of it I think was really important in which Dyson wanted to try to normalize something that was a pathology um, and that he wanted to normalize the way that he was harming himself so that he could pretend that it wasn't that bad. Um, And I think a lot of the stuff even about like toxic masculinity came out of that initial goal of Dyson trying to make his own illness seem okay. Mm.
0: Yeah, and... (sighs) as the book progressed at when you're writing it, did Dyson and Sasha ever change from who you thought they were since they were with you for so long?
1: Yeah. I mean, they changed over the course of that. Absolutely. I mean, Sasha, I think probably became a bit more active throughout, um, and that might just be because that's sort of the necessity of a book that like I couldn't just have her like sitting around um, chilling for 300 pages. Um, Dyson probably became a little bit more um, like just intense in his desire for fame and attention, things like that. I think he um, was more motivated by that as the book went on. So I think they definitely emerged and developed into those people. Um, and... Again, when I was first starting this book, it was very much um, felt just like two voices in a room that were trying to figure out how to create a cult. Um, and it, it just, I think I really needed to just create so much um, so much of a structure around it and to just sort of build the edifice of the novel. Um, And I think the more that I build around like the actual world, the more that those characters change. I've been thinking a lot about um, a professor of mine at the University of Houston, Matt Johnson. When he was there, he compared writing a novel to sailing. uh, And I know nothing about sailing, Um, but the way that he talked about it, and I might get this wrong, was that you sort of are always working in reaction to the wind. And that, you know, when the wind comes a certain way, you need to sort of move the sail so that you can sort of catch that wind or sort of go in a certain way. And that seems really true to how writing this novel felt. That um, as soon as I would start to change something about the world, then the characters would change in order to make that plausible or to sort of shore up the reality of this book.
0: Yeah, definitely. And you mentioned your time at Houston um, Mm -hmm. where you got your PhD. So was that, were you getting it in writing your PhD or what was that study like while writing Atmospherians?
1: Yeah. I mean, I was getting my PhD in literature and creative writing. um, And I was very much, um, I, I heard I heard this secondhand. um, So I probably shouldn't quote it, but I will anyway. Um, But uh, the writer Adam Johnson apparently talked about his experience at Florida State as like, he just tried to like not be noticed by anyone um, and to just do as much writing as he could. And that I think is what I tried to do. Like I really felt like I punched the clock to go to class, um, like taught my classes, like really loved my students and like gave my students Um, what I have but I was also really focused on writing this book and finishing this book and knowing that there would not be another opportunity in my life when I would have another like three to four years of full funding Um, so I really tried to take advantage of that Um, so I was yeah just really focusing on that time and doing everything that I could um, to like just write during that time and while like still maintaining like an adequate GPA to like receive my degree. Um, but I think all of that, I was just really focused on the writing aspect of it, um, while meeting the like demands of being a student and being a teacher and all of that.
0: And then did you, um, leave Houston with
1: Atmospherians
0: a draft done?
1: Yep. I left uh, with that done and I sold my book a few months before I got my PhD. Uh, Yeah. So, and the book was my dissertation. Uh, And then I wrote like a critical analysis of it as well. Hmm.
0: I was like tracking just writers timelines um, to give young emerging writers like different paths that they can take. You know, there's the MFA PhD path working in a restaurant path whatever path and uh so I always like to get to, get into the degree so thanks for going through your timeline yeah um, yeah of course and then so Atmospherians it's sold um what's the first reaction with like your editor what, what what's the first thing that you may need to at the time may need to fix or tweak or what was that like when when you were going through that editing process
1: yeah, I mean, what is wild about um, my process is, I mean, so so you've read the book, and you know that there's a, there's a passage in, like, the last section of the book, um, something completely changes, right, and there's, um, and it's very different from the rest of the book, and I remember when we sold the book, right before my agent and I went out, I decided in, like, A fit of self-doubt that I would cut that last section. I was like, I can't introduce a new thing, like, I just need to like, you know, make this book self-contained, and I can't move in that direction. And actually, my first conversation with my editor, um, who was Rakesh Satyal, um, and he's no longer at Atria, but he was my acquiring editor, Uh, and he was brilliant, and he read the book, and when we first jumped on the phone together, he was like, something is missing. <laughs> um, and I was like, well, like funny you should say that um, because I have these like 40 pages that uh, we didn't include with the submission. And I like emailed that over to him. And he was like, yeah, he was like, this is it. And he's like, this makes the book. Like, I need this to be in there. Um, so I think the first real conversation that I had with Keish, um was that we were trying to figure out how to um, reattach um, that section that I had just cut out at the last second. And I think he was right. And I think it also, that section is very different tonally and adds a lot of levity that might not be there um, in the rest of the book. So I feel yeah, really grateful that I was working with someone who was able to see outside the world that I had sent and that he was able to sort of understand, I think, on a like real intuitive level, um, that there was more that needed to be done for this story to be completed.
0: Definitely, and I know I've been spending a lot of time on your writing career and who Alex is, and I, I do just want to talk because I haven't really talked about this on podcasts before. Yeah, um, about like you've gone to the Tin House Summer Workshop, the Sewanee Writers Conference and, and yeah. other, I want to talk about just conferences and workshops and and what it's like for a writer to be going to those. How did those help mold and shape you and then specifically
1: Atmospherians? Yeah, so I think I would say that going to Tin House in 2019, I got a Tin House scholarship in 2019 for the Atmospherians. Um, and that was, that came to me at a time when I was like, I mean, I don't think there's ever a time when you're not doubting your novel, Um, but uh, it was at a time when I was in like, especially doubting. Uh, And it was incredible to get there. And I think for me, it was just a sign to like, keep working and to really focus on this book. Furthermore, I met my agent when I, I first went to Tin House in 2017, and then I went again in 2019 as a scholar. So in 2017, I met my agent, um, and that was extremely helpful for me. Um, at the other conferences, I mean, what I would say has been most important is like the people I've met there and the other writers I've been able to keep in contact with. I mean, as um, as you know, Writing conferences are expensive. Um, They can be a hassle to sort of leave your life behind for a week, or if you go to Breadloaf, two weeks. Um, And but I think they're extremely beautiful in the connections that you make with other people. Uh, And especially with writers who are like at your same level. And that's been something that's been really incredible is just meeting other writers who are like right on the edge of being about to break out, writers who are about to sell their first book and being able to continue to talk to them over the subsequent years has been amazing Um, that I can talk to them and that I can go to people who are like, a few steps ahead of me, uh, and ask them about their experience, uh, and ask them what it was like, um, to be where I am now. And they've just been really generous with that. And I have just like other friends who I talk to like every day about like, you know, um, what kind of movies I should watch or like looking for like music recommendations or anything like that. So I've just met a lot of people who have been really important to me outside of writing at those and I think that has always been really the best part is to find that community outside of um outside of just like my immediate friends and to have like professional friends who I like really trust and admire
0: yeah Yeah, I feel like everything I've heard about conferences or workshops is just those connections are not just professional, but personally are, are important. Cause writing is such a lonely, isolated thing. Most of the time that, uh, that it's always good to hear, Oh, tin house. I met, you know, someone I talk to daily, just about whatever. Um, so. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. And getting back into atmosphere, experience' cause I like to just be all over the place. Um, oh, great. Good. Yeah. We'll hop <laughs> we'll around. I, I just feel like, like you mentioned, um, the last section i i i want to like step around it and not necessarily talk too too much about it for people who haven't read it but when it was put back in yeah like and you've already touched upon this but that the book was done like you knew this touched everything you needed to touch
1: yeah i think so i mean we still went i mean something that i really loved about rakesh is that I mean, my, like, big fear um, is that when I, like, went to a big house, that um, everything that was interesting about my writing would be taken out. Um, and that was one of my, like, concerns is that, like, you know, this um, this imprint from a major five, or a major, <laughs> how many majors are there now? Is it, like, I mean, by the time this goes live, it might be, like, an imprint from the press. Um, but, uh, yeah, so I think um, I was concerned that it would be, you know, sort of shaped away from my natural vision, but Rakesh really pushed me to make the book stranger and weirder. Um, and that's something I really like. So there are a couple sections that are like the what the men needed to know sections were a late addition to the book. Um, there's the 12 terrible men section, which is a late addition. Um, and the, uh, the difficulties of manhood, a questionnaire, Um, That was also added fairly late to the book. Um, And all of those, I think, were spaces where I needed to convey ideas that I didn't really know how to continue doing on a interpersonal level, on the sort of level of like the day to day at the camp. And something I've been thinking a lot is like, I I think a lot about texture in writing. Um, Some writers who I really love, who do that Valeria Luiselli, uh, Helen DeWitt. Uh, both of them are really incredible at creating texture in a book, and I think of that as just different types of um, prose that enters into a narrative, um, whether it be formal experiments or whether it be um, just changes in extreme changes in tone, something like that. Um, and I think because most of my book is set at one place with a fairly small cast of characters, I was looking for ways to create variation and create texture. Um, and that was something that location I were working a lot with is just how to um, get outside of the narrative repetitions that might emerge when you stay in one space for a while and how did I get outside of that without just using things like backstory or um, moving from like scene to dialogue, stuff like that, or just summary, yeah.
0: Yeah, I love those sections. The questionnaire is is great. And then I was just rereading the 12 Terrible Men actually, like right before this, I just picked, um, I was like to pick a random part of the book before I talked to someone just to refresh uh, mm-hmm. about what, made me, what it made me feel like. And uh, that's the section I read, the 12 Terrible Men. Um, yeah. Well, thanks so much for talking about the Atmospherians and your backstory. Um, I've been trying to keep the podcast around 30 minutes. I feel right. like that's as long as most people listen. I could talk to you forever, though. I do want to end yeah. on you you giving us recommendations. What, what If people read the Atmospherians, what, what else would they enjoy? Or what have you just enjoyed on a personal level recently?
1: Yeah. Um, so I won't say, let's see, if they've read the Atmospherians, maybe I won't. I don't want to sound too much like an Amazon algorithm. Um, but uh, I was, so some books that I've read recently that I've really loved, um, Daryl by Jackie S um, is really good. The Portrait of a Mirror by A. Natasha Jakovsky. Uh, Aftershocks by Nadia Owusu. Uh, How to Be a Good Girl by Jamie Hood is really incredible. Um, I read Minor Feelings a couple weeks ago, which was so good by Kathy Park Hong um i also read fierce poise which is a uh biography of helen frankenthaler and part of that is for the next book that i'm working on um doing some research but that book was really good as well um yeah i should probably stop there um i can i can name many many yeah
0: thanks so much to alex for those recommendations and for coming on the podcast You can follow them on the internet, on Instagram at just underscore Alex McElroy, on their website at alexmcelroy.com. Please support The Atmospherians. It's such a terrific book, and I think the more people that read it, the more honest we can be about a lot of things going on right now. I mean, it is a book that's one of a kind, but also really touches on what's going on in the world right now. If you liked what you heard here, please check out the website, daybeautiful.net. Check us out on social media at daybeautiful on all of them. As always, I'm Adam, this is Day Beautiful, and you're all beautiful.